This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. This is Gabriel Weinberg, co-author of Traction, How Any Startup Can Achieve Explosive Customer Growth. And you're listening to The Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to The Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on The Marketing Book Podcast, which has been named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer in 2016. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's working in modern marketing. And don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything discussed in the show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. Today, we're joined by Gabriel Weinberg, and we're going to talk about the book he has co-authored with Justin Mayers, Traction, How Any Startup Can Achieve Explosive Customer Growth. Gabriel Weinberg is the founder and CEO of DuckDuckGo, the search engine that doesn't track you, with over 3 billion searches last year. Previously, he was the co-founder and CEO of Opobox, which was sold for $10 million. Gabriel, congratulations on Traction, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. Okay, so let's just uh, get a few things over with. What is DuckDuckGo? Explain that for the listener. Okay, so DuckDuckGo is a search engine, you know, like Google. You can kind of switch to it today and never look back if you want to. Um, it We don't track you, so what does that mean? It means when you search on DuckDuckGo, you are anonymous. Um, so we don't save your searches tied to you so that you don't have to worry about being tracked around the internet by ads and things like that. Okay, so I know you've been asked this before, but if you ever have a Super Bowl ad and you have a celebrity spokesperson Spokesperson <laughs> is is Edward Snowden going to be uh, the the spokesperson? I think he would make a great spokesperson for us, although I doubt he would do it. <laughs> doesn't necessarily endorse uh, product on ads as much, but um, we That's would true. love to have him if he would want to. There you go. So I don't often uh, meet folks who start search engines. I just wanted to say that it's um, it it reminds me of a friend of mine from college who started a bank. <laughs> just, who starts these things? So, uh, and the funny thing was, he started the bank because he got tired of being moved around by the bank. You know, it's it's funny the motivations people have. He's just, That's similar to my motivation. Really, you know, just, really? Yeah, it really was. I was just tired of, you know, this was back in 2007. I was getting spam on Google, and I I wanted more instant answers, and I just started making it for myself. So I I can totally empathize with that. <laughs> right. So tell us about the journey that ultimately produced this book. It actually scans a few years, but it's it's very interesting the way you talk about it at the beginning of the book. Yeah, it scans many years. I started working it in 2009. So what, what happened was, is really two things. One, I started this search engine and had no idea how to get traction for it. Um, and I had gotten traction in my last company, as you mentioned, and I tried to do very similar things, uh, use SEO, viral marketing, um, to get traction for DuckDuckGo, and it just it didn't work. And then I realized that I, I really didn't really didn't know how to get traction. And as far as I could tell, no one really did, had to have a structured framework to do so. So I went and kind of investigated it and that eventually rose to the book. And at the same time, I started angel investing around that exact same time and saw like every company I was involved with struggling with this exact same concept. And people would just try different things that they heard of, but no one was really taking a structured approach 
to finding the channel that was really going to get them to grow. And so that's how the book got started. So would you say then that uh, with your first uh, venture that you sold, you more or less stumbled upon some things that worked? I would say that's exactly right. Um, <laughs> in fact, that first business, so, so one of the things we kind of really advise in the book is to spend half your time you know, focused on traction um, and, and the other half being like on product development. And most people are very geared towards product because you got into a business because you had a product idea, you know, you wanted to start a bank like your friend. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you weren't really thinking about how to get customers. You were trying to build your product or service. So as a result, a lot of businesses fail because they spend too much time on product. Now, my previous business actually had the opposite problem. I had started all these side projects and one of them was uh, trying to get traffic from search engines, um, which was just for fun. And I did that successfully. And then the question became, how do we turn this traffic into a product? Um, and we eventually tried to find a viral loop and, and did some things around viral marketing and spent most of our effort on that and never spend enough time on product. So um, yeah, exactly. So last, the last business I backed into it, uh, backed into traction, if you will, and didn't really have to discover the channel on my own. Mm -hmm. I love all these uh, folks who like to think that what you've done, the things that founders have done, has been a very linear process. <laughs> I've yet to find someone who's had that experience. Yeah, mine is totally nonlinear. <laughs> right, right. Well, you know, uh, one thing that comes to mind when you mention that you're with your angel investing, you're seeing lots of other folks, is Brian Halligan, who's one of the co-founders of HubSpot, which you mentioned in the book, and one of the authors of the book, Inbound Marketing, he had apparently worked for a venture capital firm before he, you know, earlier in his career. And he saw, you know, the venture capitalists, from my understanding, they want their money back and they want it back as soon <laughs> as possible. And so he would uh, have these in uh, interactions with the companies that they were funding and he would ask them, what, what are you doing uh, basically to get traction? What, what, tell us about your marketing. And he said they all had the same handful of uh, marketing playbook plays and they just weren't working and that later led him to realize kind of like you have that you know there's there's other ways to do this there's smarter ways to do it and uh, they start to put that together so explain what traction is so in, in, in my kind of definition is traction is really quantitative customer demand so it is growth in customers coming to you and you usually achieve traction via a channel. In fact, you have to. It's like a, a channel that you found to reach customers. And so those, like you said, the common ones people start immediately is they may try to get you know, some press, that's the channel, or they may put up some Facebook you know, social ads or, or um, DuckDuckGo, Google ads, you know, search engine ads. Um, and there's a common uh, few set of channels that people often try. But when we exhaustively looked, there's really 19 different channels. Mm -hmm. And we found that two things that were kind of interesting. One, in any real growth phase of a company, there's usually one channel that's dominating. And two, that it's often an underutilized channel. So like if everyone in your industry is using X and you're a startup, you probably don't want to use X because it's expensive. <laughs> um, and you could probably get more traction in an underutilized channel. And so as a result of that, you know, we set up this framework to try to find which channel would be best for you at the right time. And that just involves a lot of brainstorming, experimentation, and then doubling down on, on what works. Mm -hmm. Do more of what works and less of what doesn't work. Now, when you say one, one, is, one channel is dominant, what, what do you mean by that? So by that, I mean a lot of companies, they try a lot of things, 
and they don't shed kind of low-performing channels. So if you look at kind of a, a random company you pull off the street, they might be doing, you know, some search engine ads. We'll do a billboard here or there. You know, maybe they'll do some TV ads and maybe they have a sales team. And then if you actually dig into their numbers, okay, like where are all your customers coming from? There's usually an 80-20 thing going on. Like 80% of their customers are coming from their sales channel. And the rest, the 20% are, you know, are coming from these other scattered channels. And so by that, I mean, in any company, and you really go down and look, it's usually there's one dominant channel that's delivering most of the customers. And the counterintuitive result from that that I take away is, you know, you should shed that 20%, focus on the 80%, and see if you can optimize it and like double, triple by those by optimization to see if you can get to your goal faster. Yeah, pull because, the thread. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of that other activity is kind of distracting you. And so like an example we, we give in the book is if you brainstorm, you know, say say you're say you have a goal of reaching a thousand customers and you brainstorm all the nineteen channels and you decide, okay, I think I'm gonna go to a trade show, I think I'm gonna explore PR and you know, Facebook ads, and you try all of them. And these were your best ideas, and so it's likely they all work a little bit, but you know, a trade show like was way better than the rest. Now, when you set up those tests for kind of PR and Facebook, they're still sitting there. So it's likely you have additional PR people to reach out, or maybe someone reaches out to you and you know, you could still spend some time on the Facebook ads, optimizing it. And most people continue to do that. But I think that's a mistake. What you really should do is shut those down and really go all in on trade shows because it was working way better for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let me just mention a few of the of the 19 in there. Um, and before I do that, I just wanted to say there's a, in my opinion, Gabriel, there's a dirty little secret about your book. This is not just for startups because <laughs> I'm, I'm dealing with companies where they're not startups and yet they are completely overwhelmed with what they should do. They, they, maybe they know their sales aren't working and they're kind of plateauing. Maybe they're blaming the economy or whatever, but they're just, they want to have like this marketing buffet where they've got a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And they, you know, they kind of want to put, they want to put 19 lines in the water, but they don't realize there's 19. They think there's 50. And so, but that was just, that was just my takeaway, but it's, it's certainly helpful for, for startups. I mean, we're, we're arguably not a startup now at this point at DuckDuckGo. And so I completely agree. And we've, we've switched channels six times. And the reason for that is we grew so much that we reached diminishing returns in that channel. And when you do that, you have to recognize that, yeah, you've hit diminishing returns and you've got to find a new channel. And like, to do that, the first thing you have to do, and this is where I think a lot of companies that kind of you're mentioning fail, is they they don't set a traction goal. And if you don't set a goal, you have a hard time evaluating if your marketing efforts are effective, are able to reach that goal or not. And so I use that, you can use that in two contexts. If you're a startup, often when you're starting out, you don't need a lot of customers, you need like 100. And so things that don't scale often makes sense, you know, actually going out to meetups and stuff. Mm-hmm. But when you're a little farther along, you're an established business like us or your people you're talking about, you need, you know, a million customers if you're a consumer business. You know, all of a sudden you going to a meetup is not going to work. <laughs> um, and a lot of that marketing activity that worked in the past is not going to get you that next million customers. It might get you another 10,000. And all of a sudden it's not worth your time. And yet companies, because it worked in the past, they still keep it around. And that's what we found time and time again. It's really hard, even at our company. You know, it's like, I knew this thing was working. It was working a year ago. But, you know, it's not working now for us. So we should really kill it. 
Yeah, if there's a force in the marketing and business world that's stronger than inertia, I haven't found it. <laughs> exactly. So some of the, the things you talk about here, uh, and, and you, you've gone in and showed how you or, or many other companies have succeeded, but not to go through all of them, but one of them is like targeting other blogs or publicity or unconventional PR. And then you talk about you know, social and display ads, but also offline advertising, good old-fashioned uh, advertising, you know, content marketing, email marketing, uh, things like we'll talk about like engineering is marketing and and even viral marketing and even walks them through sales. So when I go to the startup place that's in my town and I give talks every once in a while, you know, this is I get so many questions that could be answered with this book. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I see I'm, I'm I'm now I'm on to you. I now I see how the sales how the sales are uh, how this pyramid scheme is that you've set up. So. Let's talk, though, for a minute about, so there's these 19 ways, and you, I, I think the biggest thing missing that companies don't do, easy to explain, you already touched on it, is how do you know it's working? How do you test it? So you walk through how companies should actually be testing to see if it's actually working rather than going by their gut. A lot of this can be measured. But let's go back to why do startups focus on the same handful of channels instead of others? Is it just familiarity or is it fear or what? Yeah, I think I think there's a couple things going on. I think one is that they literally don't know what to do. And that's the easiest answer. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's some form of availability bias. You know, they they're biased to what's in front of them. Um, and then there's there's some other biases that creep in. I think ultimately there's a lot of bias here. And then there there's some startups are just biased against certain channels. So things like sales or affiliate marketing or um, or even offline ads, as you mentioned, it feels so unfamiliar that, you know, people are like, well, this one's familiar. I should do what's familiar. But the problem with that is that's familiar to everybody. So it's crowded. Um, and so there's a lot of leverage in going to channels that your industry is not knowledgeable about. And they're actually not that hard to kind of dip your feet in. And you mentioned testing. You don't have to be an expert to run a test. So we identified in the book, you know, you can often test these channels, especially as a startup, in less than 30 days, less than $1,000, um, and see if, a- answer quantitatively a few things, you know, like how much does it cost to acquire a customer through that channel? Is it the right type of customer for you? Like, are they engaged with your product? And how, um, how many are there? Like, will it actually scale to get to your goal? If and only if, it actually feels like it's a promising channel that can reach your goal, you can double down and really become an expert or, or help hire other people who are experts to help you manage the channel. Um, but you can really explore them without a lot of knowledge. So give us an example of an attraction goal. So initially, when starting out, the goal is often one of three things. You know, how many customers I need to raise money, how much traction I need to raise money, or how much I need to be profitable. Or if you're in a big company, you know, how much traction do I need to show my kind of superiors and management to fund this project more? And you should be able to put hard numbers to that because that's usually a revenue target um, of some kind. And you know what the business model is. So you know, you know how much you make per customer. And then you can back out how many customers you need. And when you're starting out, it's often not that not, not that many customers. You're really trying to prove the business model or market is there. Now, when you're farther along, like us, I think it's more like, what is an inflection point in your company? Like, what 
is the next milestone you need to reach to raise your next round of funding or get the next kind of rung of market share in the market or prove out the market to an extent um, that you think is necessary. And you can also back out, that's often kind of a revenue or customer number, and back out the number of customers there. And then you look at the delta and you say, okay, I need a million more people now on, say, on DuckDuckGo. Let's look at our marketing ideas and say, does that channel really have the potential to bring in a million new customers? If not, it's it's not going to work for us. And then I'm going to move on to one of the other 19, other 18. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like so many businesses always talk about, well, prove the ROI of this or prove the ROI <laughs> of that. And yet they're not measuring anything already. Uh, right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's that's kind of the wrong, like I, I applaud them for trying to think quantitatively about it. But I think that's kind of the wrong question, right? To me, it's the business question is, is does this have the potential to reach my business goal? And then you can figure out, um, you know, how much it costs and all that kind of stuff. Right. So you still don't have to throw darts at a dartboard that has 19 targets on it to, make, <laughs> to get to this. I do not think so. No, no. You, you've got a three-step <laughs> framework called yeah. Bullseye uh, to figure out, to help get you there. Uh, can you explain uh, the, the bullseye approach and, and how that you really need to do that first? Yeah, I mean, so after this goal setting, which is kind of step zero, the bullseye metaphor is really like a bullseye, like a target. You're trying to hit the bullseye, and the target is that one channel that's really going to dominate your growth. And the outer rung is really, you know, all the 19 channels. And what you do is you just kind of start to brainstorm on kind of a spreadsheet as numbers focused as you can get and try to guesstimate, you know, what are your best ideas in these different channels that you think will, um, you know, get you to your goal. And then, you know, after this brainstorm, which should be pretty in depth, like we recommend going to talk to other, you know, companies and agencies to help you ideate and things like that, because some of these channels aren't familiar, but then you actually look and it's often the case that, you know, you, you can rank, the ideas and kind of how promising and exciting they are. And then we suggest just picking the top three, running as cheap and quick tests as you can to prove out your assumptions. And if one looks like it's working, then you know double down on it and try to make it work um, until it doesn't. And it, assuming that it does, you're all set. Assuming that it doesn't, you know, circle back and, and run more tests at that kind of second step. But we often say, you know, just just do three max at a time. Because more than that is, like you said, just too overwhelming. It's too it's too much chaos. It's like throwing darts. <laughs> they already have enough. Okay, now at the very end of the book, though, you've got this uh, appendix. And in your next edition, uh, just a little suggestion, Gabriel, you need to, re- to rename it from appendix to no excuses. Because <laughs> you've got these middle, ring, these middle ring tests. And it for, every, for all 19 of them, you've got uh, – you're telling them, okay – do this. So like if somebody's saying, well, I can't think up anything for how to target a blog, there's a whole section on, okay, just just do this. Try this. So it's it really gets the snowball rolling down the hill. So I like no excuses. Just, yeah, this is this is the second edition. So yeah. first edition, that was the number one question. Okay, yeah, but how do I actually do this? You know? <laughs> right. And and so the second edition, we were like, okay, we're gonna make a list of step by step instructions for each channel to at least give people an idea of what they could do. Um, yeah. And, and so I, I think that's a, it's a blueprint. If you, if you want, if you don't want to think at all about brainstorming, just. And who does Gabriel? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I, yeah. And I didn't realize that this wasn't in the first edition. I only read the, the second edition. So, well, let's keep going here. 
So you've got the, the bullseye, and then you look at all the different channels. Now let's go back to that 50-50 rule. What are the benefits or the dangers of not pursuing you know, product development and traction in parallel? In other words, doing traction when you have time. You see that being done wrong a lot? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a it's one of these things that sounds right, but it's actually wrong. And so, like the metaphor I like is this leaky bucket metaphor. So when you when you start any kind of product, it's it's a leaky bucket, right? So it's got a lot of holes in it. If you try to put customers in it, you know they're they're flowing out, and people take away from that that wow, I really shouldn't try to get traction until I plug these leaks. And I think that's where the fallacy is, in that you can't actually tell where the leaks are if you're not getting a pair of fresh eyes on your product constantly. And so you really need to be doing some small traction things. You don't have to spend a lot of money. And I think that's where people get tripped up. They think you got to spend a lot. You don't have to spend a lot. Just spend a little and keep getting fresh eyes on your product so you can actually see where those you know holes are in your product development cycle and it'll influence it. Now, if you're doing it right and kind of following this method, in doing that, you're also going to discover you know which channel is most effective which niche to focus on when you launch, and kind of which marketing message is resonating, which those three things together make a, like a credible distribution strategy so that when you actually launch, you know you have a sticky product and you know how to market it and get traction. What generally happens is people wait, you know, they, they don't spend the 50%, they spend all their time on product, they launch and then realize, you know, hey, I don't know how to market it and my product isn't sticky. <laughs> and <laughs> They just they have to do another round, you know, they have real market feedback. But they could have been getting that market feedback right from the beginning, and that's why um, we say spend fifty percent. I think the real fallacy there is people think that if they're doing any kind of traction activities, they have to launch or like do that. You can really do this kind of in private by even small things like using search engine ads and send them to your website. You don't have to tell the world that you're that you're live. You can even send them to kind of a back corner, but you can still keep getting fresh eyes on your product. Yeah, some of these things were in the tens or hundreds of dollars. Uh, right, it's not it's not expensive, you know. Yeah, <laughs> it's just well, maybe they think it, if it's not expensive, it's not valuable. I, I, <laughs> right. I mean, like it, for anyone like that who has a, at least to have a web presence part of their product, mm-hmm. um, there's a site called uh, UserTesting.com. And there's a bunch of sites like this, but that's one we use at DuckDuckGo. And basically, you you sign people up, and they go to your website. You give them a script of things to do, and they just talk out loud about what they're seeing. Mm-hmm. And um, it can be painful. <laughs> um, Truth hurts. It's a quick way to really get validation. It's not expensive. Um, and it's an easy way to run these traction tests. Yeah. Well, one of the things I I wanted to ask you to explain was this critical path and and the importance of that. So we've talked about the 19 channels, the bullseye. What is the critical path? Yeah, I I put this in there because um, it's a little off topic, but like it's very important to me having run DuckDuckGo for eight years. Um, And really what it is is, you know, if you don't have traction in your company, you're going to die as a company. I mean, that's really why I think it's so important. And yet people spend a lot of their time when they start a company or even in any business working on stuff that just doesn't matter. And if you, the critical path is what is the path to really achieving the next traction milestone? And what do you actually have to do on that path to get there? Anything not on there, so like that, all that extra paperwork that's been sitting on your desk, that's not going to impact getting traction. Like 
we just throw it away and just say it's irrelevant until it becomes a real problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really what the concept is. It also seems like a like a rallying cry or it just kind of keeps people tethered to reality if you keep asking about, you know, if you keep bringing the topic of, of traction up. Right. And that's what we do internally. We say, you know, why why is this project critical? Essentially, you know, people think of projects as, you know, critical projects are that's the important one. Then all the rest of my work is, you know, regular work. In my opinion, like everything you work on should be critical or else you shouldn't be working on it. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's go into a couple specific tactics. And I wanted to ask you, uh, with social advertising, like advertising on Facebook or Twitter and so forth, what is indirect response? So this is an interesting concept, I think, that differs from people's intuition about advertising that has come up with these social advertising platforms like Facebook and now Snapchat and things like that. The idea is, is Traditional marketing, except for brand marketing, had been, you know, let's try to get a direct response, you know, and and, and get someone to buy this right away. Um, whereas brand advertising had been like, um, you know, let's let people know that we exist, and then over time they'll kind of get in, get get us in the back of their head when they're making a buying decision. And indirect response is kind of in between. It says. You know, these people are already on social platforms engaging with their friends and family and brands, and let's get them engaged with our brand directly, but then not try to sell them directly, just get them to engage directly. And then over time, that will lead to a direct response. And it's called indirect response because you're not trying to get them to a direct response immediately, you're indirectly doing that by having them engage with the brand first. And so this manifests in you know, building engaging experiences on these social platforms, you know, be it Snapchat, Twitter, um, you know, Facebook, where people, you're doing interesting things with content and people are kind of following along with you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you talk about how building an audience with social ads is more valuable than a lot of companies think. The the other important thing about this is, is you talk about how the burden of success with these, with the, when advertising with these social platforms, the burden of success is on the advertiser as opposed to the platform. Can you explain that? Yeah, I mean, so um, in other words, somebody's thinking Facebook ads don't work. <laughs> it, I, I, it, it's hard to explain. I mean, like the, um, I think people uh, try things that are. This is back to the indirect response. They they try things that weren't going to be successful um, to begin with yes. with that with that platform. <laughs> yeah, and, and then they think the platform doesn't work. Right, exactly. And so you know, one way to kind of get around that if you're new to these platforms is every single one has like a like a a best. I don't know why this word is escaping me. Like use case. Um, section of their website that is like uh, showing how some of the best advertisers have approached it on their site. Facebook has one, Twitter has one, and kind of looking there first to kind of see what some of these awesome campaigns look like. We, we talk about some in the book mm-hmm. um, is a good starting place. Yeah. Yeah. Best so, practices. I don't know why that escaped me. Best practices. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe you're not fond of jargon. Case that, studies that, too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I see this a lot where people think this stuff doesn't work and you, you say, well, tell me about what you're doing. Well, I'm trying to sell a vacation 
<laughs> with a Facebook ad. Well, warm them up. And it, it reminds me of Gary Vaynerchuk's theory of uh, the 19-year-old dude move. Have you ever heard of that? No. It's, uh, it's where an, a 19-year-old guy thinks he's going to get some serious romantic action on his first date. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of advertisers and salespeople act this way like, hey, hey, can you, you want to buy it? You want to buy it? Like, whoa, <laughs> slow down. L- let me, let me, you know, kind of get to know you first. Uh, maybe you could show some interest in me. So that's, uh, that's sort of ties it all back to that. There is uh, in the section on content marketing, this is the part where I stood up, pumped my fist in the air and screamed out, <laughs> yes. And, and I don't, you, you, this is going to surprise you probably, but it, it was page 105 and you talked about shareable content. And you said the secret to shareable content is showing readers they have a problem they didn't know about or at least couldn't fully articulate. And the reason I said that is because there's a, another book, and one of the authors has been on the show. It's called The Challenger Customer, written by the guys at Corporate Executive Board, CEB. And a big part of their book is very much about that sentence, where they talk about how companies that are marketing, they're trying in their marketing to show that what a rosy future you'll have if you go with our product. And all the research they did, they showed that, no, actually, what you need to do is show them what they're doing wrong. You need to change their preconceived notions, even if their preconceived notions are wrong. So anyway, uh, that was... That was uh, that got me all fired up because I linked it to like half of that other book. So in the third <laughs> I, edition, yeah. don't take that <laughs> sentence out. I completely agree. It's funny because that sense that that is a sentence we talked about a lot, actually. Oh, really? Um, yeah. And our editor at um, at Portfolio really helped craft it and kind of ca- encapsulate some of the idea there. Um, better. So I, I should let them know that you really liked it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that other book is the Challenger Customer. So um, it was, uh, anyway, for a book nerd, you know, when you're the host of the Marketing Book Podcast, you get excited about these kind of things. One other question, what is engineering as marketing? It's a great concept. Not that many people seem to be doing it. Can you explain that for the listener? Yeah, this is one of these channels, like we're talking about underutilized channels that you should check out because no one's doing it. And we actually had to name it. So if you haven't heard of this, it's probably because no one has because we named it. But it is the concept of creating kind of a sister product that isn't really a product. It's more of a tool that's generally free and feeds into your product. And so HubSpot, you mentioned earlier, is a good example. They have this website called Marketing Grader that you can go to and just type in your domain name and see how good you are at online marketing. It tells you how well you sell in search engines, on social, and stuff like that. Completely free. All you have to do is type in your domain name. But if you are a good at online kind of marketer, you're also possibly a good customer for their kind of higher-end product that they sell. And so it's a good funnel into their product, but it's not really part of their product. And it's not really totally a sales tactic either. It is a free standalone tool. And we found a number of other companies doing this. And, you know, we have done that ourselves, kind of our own version of it. Um, And it works really well. And the reason why it's so underutilized is because, you know, people hardly ever think of using their engineering or product development resources to build this other thing that's not really their product. It's really um, applying their engineering resources or product development resources towards marketing. Um, But because these people don't actually spend a lot of time making good free tools for people. <laughs> There's a lot of white space out there um, in almost every category. Yeah, you, you talked about how Brian Halligan, who I mentioned earlier, 
he kept asking Darmesh to run this information on prospective clients on their website so that Brian could you know, go back to them and explain more about their product with some personalized information. And finally, Darmesh, I guess he, you know, he may have gotten a little tired of having to do it, so he just created <laughs> the thing so Brian could do it himself. But it's also interesting because in uh, Scott Brinker's new book, Hacking Marketing, he talks about how this is actually, this sort of interactive content is actually uh, more successful than just uh, just the content marketing, just the content. And uh, one of the reasons is because a lot of the marketing people don't know enough or, th- or it's not the first thing they think of is, you know, uh, whip up this product for me that we can use. Rather, they would start with a few other tactics before they would think of, you know, just uh, going to engineering and, and sitting down with them and saying, can you guys put this together for me? Yeah, that's right. It's also really valuable because it essentially functions as a product in the sense that it can have retention. Like people come back to in the marketing grader example, they come back to it all the time, you know, and, you know, agencies who may use it for their clients send people to it. And it, it's not like a one-time content thing where you consumed this piece of content and you're done. It often has a really long life cycle. And so the resources that you spend towards it often have a lot more value than, you know, just the resources spent towards like the creative for an ad or something like that. Yeah. And also uh, in the book, you mentioned that uh, Darmish said they really generated a lot of leads. And I got to say a a large number of their leads. And that is the very first way I ever heard about HubSpot years ago was the marketing grader. Fast forward. Now I'm a customer and I'm using it for clients and, you know, uh, all that sort of thing, drinking the orange Kool-Aid. So (laughs) that was the very first way that that I uh, came into that. I should add, though, that, and I don't know quite the answer, so you could ask Darmesh <laughs> since you know him, but in the last couple of weeks, it seems that Marketing Grader is now being redirected to Website Grader, and it's generating more uh, information about uh, aspects just about your website rather than your, perhaps, marketing effectiveness. Um, huh, in, interesting. In the, in the HubSpot tool, they I can still get the Marketing Grader information, but I, I'm still trying to figure out what, what they were doing there because I've, you know, I've had like, li- I've done blog posts about lists of companies and certain things. And I've used marketing grader as a way to, to make a point and, you know, encourage other people, whoever's reading it to use it. So now it's, it's kind of, they seem to be taking a different direction there. So I wonder why they would do that. It makes no sense well, to me, but you know, they probably have some sense behind it. They probably know. did. Yeah. They, uh, they test everything. So, uh, <laughs> well, Gabriel, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? I think it would just be to, when you think about getting traction, taking a structured approach to it, not a scattershot approach. Whatever, if you use our structured approach, take some structured approach. Right, right. That's like uh, the notion of no decision, not making a decision is a decision. Just make a decision. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so take, take, use some kind of approach. What books have inspired your work in, in career? Well, we do mention... You know, the uh, Lean Startup and Four Steps to the Epiphany in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- those definitely have. Um, I'd say those have probably been the um, most. I, the, I really like, in addition, you know, a lot of the behavioral economics books in terms of marketing, which is not direct marketing books, but they're kind of applied marketing books. Mm-hmm. So Predictably Irrational by Dan O'Reilly. And then um, there's actually just a, this is for me personally, mm-hmm. uh, but there was a speech that Charles Munger gave 
at Harvard in 1995 called the philosophies of human misjudgment and it's, it's online. Um, oh, we'll have to try and uh, find that and, and put a link in the show notes. Yeah, it's good. And it's not that long. And, um, that really kicked me off into this whole behavioral economics and marketing realm. Hmm, interesting. Well, are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading? Yeah, I'm in the middle now of Creativity Inc. from the founder of Pixar. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which has been a, a great book. And this is not really marketing, but just more organizational. Any books? I got into a book called The Advantage um, by uh, Patrick. I forgot his last name, like Leosoni. He wrote a lot of books. He wrote a bunch of business books that are kind of narrative driven, like Death by Meetings and, and stuff like that. But this one kind of summarizes like seven of his books in a more structured way. The Advantage? Uh, the Advantage, oh, yeah. We'll have, to, we'll have to put a link to that as well. That sounds really interesting. And so the, I, I got a lot of use out of that and, and value. Okay. So how best can listeners learn more about you uh, and your book? Um, so the book is at tractionbook.com. And me, probably best to follow me on Twitter at Y-E-G-G. Okay, good. Well, the name of the book is Traction, How Any Startup Can Achieve Explosive Customer Growth. The authors are Gabriel Weinberg and Justin Mares. Gabriel, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you. And that closes the book on episode 72 of the Marketing Book Podcast. But please don't let the end of this episode be the end of what you can learn about modern marketing. Visit marketingbookpodcast.com for links to all the things we talked about in this interview and access to lots of free marketing guides. And while there, make sure to sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. Want to make my day? Send me a message. I love hearing from listeners like you. I really do. Which interviews have you found most helpful? What kind of marketing challenges are you facing? Let me try to help point you in the right direction. Just go to marketingbookpodcast.com and leave me a message or connect with me on LinkedIn. Or heck, just tweet me up using hashtag marketingbook. And please join us next time as we talk with the always colorful and irreverent ad contrarian Bob Hoffman about his book, Marketers are from Mars. Consumers are from New Jersey. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. And I appreciate the copy of the book because the money I saved by not having to buy the book, Gabriel, a donation (laughs) has been made in your name to the Douglas Burdett Single Malt Scotch Fund. (laughs) Thanks.